0: Okay, let's go ahead and get started here on module number two. Module number two I've entitled, Demystifying the Budget. This isn't the first time I've talked about budgeting. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is that there's a certain reaction when I hear the word or when I say the word budgeting that kind of mimics the look on this tyke's face. Any of you uh, confess to having that reaction to the budget? You don't have to confess, it's okay. So this poor soul has just got, um, I can't tell if that's a his or a her, but anyways, their first exposure to what looks like a lime in the hand there. And so that's the reaction to the face. And um, I thought it was particularly colorful and thought it might be interesting to share at the beginning of this uh, module. So what I'd like to do is tell you a tale of two companies. Both of these companies are companies at which I've worked and they had very different approaches to budgeting. So let me tell you the story first. And then I'll tell you the point of the story. The first company is Simpson Timber Company. Simpson is uh, located in Shelton, Washington, uh, and it was in timberland. It had uh, several thousand acres of timber property that it owned, it also had manufacturing plants related to um, forest and wood products. 2,000 employees, it was a fairly sizable company. Um, had a 100-year history. It was family-owned, but it actually started back um, in the late 1890s with the founder, Saul Simpson, um, acquiring timberland property near the current headquarters of Shelton, Washington. And in Simpson Timber Company, what they did was they had an annual budget, and in addition to the annual budget, they had rolling quarterly forecasts, which is just a fancy way of saying a quarterly budget. And every month when the financial statements came out, all of the division controllers and whoever was responsible to help them with their jobs had to come up with reasons why the actual results varied from the quarterly budget and the annual budget, and they had to give updates. And so at Simpson Timber Company, there was one person on the corporate staff, which was where I worked, was in the corporate staff, whose entire job was the budget, the budget and the rolling quarterly forecast. That was a level of investment in budgeting that I have never seen anywhere else. It was really intense, right? There was a lot of commitment to making the budget right and communicating all the right you know, numbers and words to explain the numbers and all of that. And it took one person full time, plus you know, the, the uh, commitments of uh, several of the operating staff, in order to maintain that system. Then there was Delson Lumber Company, which is where I worked immediately after I was done at Simpson. Delson Lumber Company was also located in the Pacific Northwest, just down the road in Olympia. It was a lumber producer, much smaller company, about 120 employees with a single production facility um, right in the area where they were. It was also family owned. It had been in business for, I don't remember how long, at least 30 years, and I can't remember if it had a history beyond that. Um, And it was also family-owned. The family unit that owned and controlled it was much tighter than the Simpson family because the Simpson had multiple generations, and you know how the family trees expand over generations. So their group was actually much larger, but still it was all family-owned. At Delson Lumber Company, we didn't have a budget. The owner of the company knew his operation. He was out in the mill every day and then in the office with us, uh, you know, numbers types people in the afternoon every day, and he didn't think he needed a budget. So he just managed the operation by walking around the floor and seeing what was going on in the production facility, and then coming back to the office and asking us questions about numbers and, and, um, you know, should I buy this piece of equipment or whatever. And we never had a budget in the four years that I worked there. So Delson Lumber Company was kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum. So you have no budget, and then you have what I call, like, the most complicated budget, nuanced, thorough budget I've ever seen in the world. That's the tale of my two companies. For most of us, most of the time, budgeting that's useful and helpful is gonna be somewhere in between those extremes, okay? What I'd like to do now is just draw a point out of that. And this is the, the key point of this whole module. Remember that budgeting is a process that produces a product. So there's both a process that you go through and a product that comes out the other end. Sometimes you learn more from the process than the actual product that comes out. Sometimes both are very important. But the budgeting process and product are tools whose proper use is determined by the present need of its users. So the point of all this is that the question you should ask yourself about about your budgeting practice is not, am I doing it right, but rather is it helping me to meet my goals there's not some monolithic standard or ideal budget that works across all people in all situations it's a very personal customized tool and so the the way to understand it and use it is to understand your business needs your business objectives and then say how can i use a budgeting process or how can i use the budget that results from a budgeting process to help me achieve my goals, okay? So, in just a minute, I'm gonna make sure you all had a chance to take shots of the slide. It looks like everybody has now. Um, I'm gonna go through a list of a few things that a budget could be used to do. This is not a comprehensive list, it's just a few things. Often, a budget is used as a plan. That's most of the time what it is. It's a plan for the future, and as part of that planning process, in the budget, you will anticipate or provide the details to support decision making about limited resources, right? So when you go through a budget, usually you have less money than what you want, right? Every budget I've ever gone through, we wish we had more money to spend on certain things. So you have to start thinking what's most important. That's a capital allocation process where you decide what's most important, what's most likely to help you achieve your business objectives. That's a use of a budget. If it helps you think about that and get those priorities clear in your mind so that when those distractions come throughout the year, you will remember why you chose what you did and then you'll have you know, that direction and that focus. Sometimes opportunities come up during the year that are actually more valuable than what you anticipated and you make a change. But it's that process of deciding where can I spend my money in the way that it's gonna best help me achieve my objections, uh, <laughs> my objectives objections is something else. My objectives, right? So thinking about what's most likely to get me to the point that I'm headed towards. This can also include non-financial stuff, right? So we talk about budgeting often in the context of money. I find, honestly, that budgeting works very well at potlucks, okay? So when I approach a potluck table, one of the first things I like to do is walk down the table from the beginning to the end and see what's there. Otherwise, what happens? I put in my plate, and I said, boy, that salad looks great. And I pull the whole plate with salad and then I get down to the lasagna and there's no room. That's not good. Okay, well, that was a little bit of fun. But anyways, it does work in non-financial settings too. It can be helpful for communicating efficiently, and that was one of the reasons Simpson had such an elaborate budget, right? So the management was located up in Seattle, they had manufacturing places in Shelton, they had one um, in an outlying part on the Olympic Peninsula, and they had some in Northern California. So communicating efficiently about the results of each of those places was an important piece of them being able to manage the company. So it can actually help with communications in certain settings. It can be useful for educating. Right? So sometimes it might be you know, educating a family, it might be educating a superior, it might be educating a board. In my last job, I would use the budgeting process regularly to educate our board about the particular financial dynamics that affected our company and what things they should be paying attention to, uh, at least in my, my vision. So anyways, that's another possibility. It can also be used to answer a specific question. So sometimes there will be a budget not about the whole company, but a budget for a project. Have you ever built a new home? There's usually a budget. At least the contractor, if they're a good one, will have some sort of a budget to support that or any number of things. So it can be narrower in scope and just answer a specific question. So again, we'll follow that same pattern. I'm gonna give you a little bit of case history on Better Together Farms just so you have something in real life that can guide your discussion about a question that I'll put up following that about Uh, knowing the score in your own situation. So, as you remember um, from the last module, the record-keeping that um, the family had had been spotty and had mixed records. It was similar uh, in the farm until about 2018 when, um, as Vivian shared earlier, they made a commitment to uh, more contemporaneously recording uh, their transactions. They adopted QuickBooks for farm operations in 2018 and 2019. In 2019, they achieved break-even operations at about $40,000 plus or minus a little bit in sales. So that gives you a little bit of a, a sense for the, the scope of the operation. There had been, up to that point, no written budget, no specific concrete financial plan for the farm. Okay? So that's kind of the, the case history that we had with them up to that point. The first family budget was produced in April of 2020. You heard about that um, just before the break from Vivian. So here's the question that I want to pose for you to discuss in your groups, and then we'll follow that with a little bit of large group discussion. And then um, Aubrey's going to come up and tell us what actually happened in the case of Better Together Farm with respect to this whole conversation. Here's the question. How well do you know the score for your farm's finances? Okay, so if you are on a farm or if you're contemplating, seriously considering being in a farm, what you should answer, what you should think about is my farm – financial records, my budget, whatever it is, is set up so that I know where I'm at, I know where I need to be, and I have relatively quick information about whether or not I'm achieving those goals. That's what I mean by the score, okay? And so if you think about a contest of any sort, you know, a soccer game or a basketball game or whatever, if you know what the score is, and you know how much time is left in the game, it changes your strategy, right? If I'm behind by three goals and there's a minute left, I might take some more risks than if there's 30 minutes left, right? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Do you know enough so that it can guide your strategy, your decision-making? That's the whole point of having these financial records and budget in place. So how well do you know the score for your farm's finances? Again, a scale of one to 10. One, I have no idea, 10, it's very clear. And then some of these follow-up questions, if it's on, on the lower end of the scale, what could you do to make it more clear? What would be useful in your situation? And um, if it's pretty high on the scale, eight, nine, or a 10, you know, what are some of the, the choices, the investments you made to get it to that point? And as before, if you have a situation that it makes sense for you to answer this from your own lens, do that. If not, put yourself in the shoes of Better Together Farm and where they're at and what you're learning about their system and think about how they would answer this. So yourself, if you've got the, if it's a good fit, if not, answer in light of the case study we will take about five minutes to uh, share in your groups. So let's go ahead and break into your groups and do that now. Okay, folks, let's go ahead and draw those conversations to a close and get ready to re-engage with the large group. So we'll take just a little bit of time to have maybe one or two people share, uh, and then we need to press on. Otherwise, we're going to get behind in our agenda. So um, any volunteers or anybody that you want to volunteer? And um, I actually recruited one. Go ahead, Ricky. You've got somebody right there. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And let me just underscore that point. I've invited Robert right in front of you there, Rick, to share next. So I'm just going to make a comment, and then we'll invite Robert to share. Keeping the score isn't the same as winning the game, right? If I know the score but I'm still losing, I still have to go play the game. I think maybe that's a fair restatement of the point you were making. Excellent point. So budgeting is just one of the tools, but it's not the answer to the big picture. And I think it's very appropriate to keep that in perspective. Go ahead, Robert. Thank you. Excellent, Robert. I appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to invite Aubrey to come up now and tell you a little bit about what actually happened on Better Together Farm with respect to this topic.
1: Uh, Farm budget. So, like you've heard, about a little over a year ago, I took over the uh, farm finances. Mom and I were doing it. It's kind of a, a team project. And then, when she started taking over the family finances and getting that organized, I asked if I could just take over. Um, the farm finances entirely and um, so that's how I got involved just to give you a little background on myself personally I was trained in uh, video production and I probably by nature am much more of an English student than I am a math student so for those of you who might be in the listening and are concerned about you know I'm not really a math person I'm not really a numbers person uh, I, I'm right. I was right where you are, and um, through through my good, very good friend who is an accountant and kind of launched Mom and me in record keeping, and then through Mr. Keevan, I have become much more of a numbers person, and and I've learned to get excited about digits um, instead of uh, words and visuals. So Mr. Keevan it celebrates that he has made a uh, transformed a transformed a more of a creative mind into more of a. Uh, well, not creatively, I don't know. Uh, so that's just a little bit of my history. So if you're there, there's hope for you. This is totally doable and it can actually be a whole lot of fun. I've, I've actually come to enjoy a, a lot more. I have a, a lot more good days than I do bad days when it comes to keeping track of the farm finances. So what I have on the screen here is just a uh, screenshot of part of our budget. Um, the question was, that Mr. Keegan posed to us at the beginning of last year was you know how do you know if you have a shot at making at making this farm go so the first step to figuring that out was figuring out what did we need to live on which my mom uh, spearheaded with him and figured out what those family expenses what we needed to live on second thing that we need to figure out was what are our farm expenses what do we what are we going to be looking at forecasting as far as what we need for 2020, to make the farm go. So fortunately, um, 2019, I had done the record keeping, and we had really great record of our expenses for 2019. Um, so what we did was simply take our take our expenses from 2019, and then. We, we did this process in April, so we already had several months worth of expenses that we could then use to forecast what our budget would be for 2020. And we went through that for all what you're seeing up here as our consumables, um, but there's several different sections of our, our farm expenses that we just went through. And we just, based off of last year and where we were thinking of going this year, we had four months into the year, where did we think we'd get? And that landed us, um, with the number that you see here on the right. So in 2019, our total farm expenses were $34,044.50. We forecasted for 2020 that we would spend $43,855. That's what we gave ourselves uh, budget-wise. So in order to figure out what we needed to make on the farm, we took our total farm expenses, projected farm expenses, plus our family living expenses, and that gave us $68,605 that we needed to make as a farm in order to be sustainable in 2020. So um, total farm expenses plus total living expenses equals our total revenue goal to make sure that we're not ending up in, uh, in trouble at the end of 2020. We got that established. We know how much we need in 2020. Now the question is, how do we figure out if the farm has a shot at being able to cover those expenses? How do you do that? You know how much you need to make. How do you know if what you're even going to grow gives you the potential of being able to make that kind of revenue? And so I'm gonna show you how we got to that uh, answer. Ourselves And I simplified our spreadsheet that we used to give you an idea of how this works. And we did this for every single variety of, of uh, vegetable or, or product that we were planning on growing. I'm gonna go over the top one first. The bottom is the exact same, just with a different crop. So, beets. What we first needed to figure out was how much one bed of beets would yield approximately, and you can get this information. Um, these, this is based off of the U.S. yield, average. yield averages, and uh, we have that information. You can contact my brother afterwards if you want to know how to get. It. You can probably just Google it um, and find it. So, four beets, the the yield average per bed, and there's a little bit of math that you'll need to do. We Um, Our farm is very standardized. We were very intentional as we started to get serious about this to make sure that everything we grew was standardized so it would be really easy to do math. Because, and fortunately we have the the luxury, basically a grid that we grow on. Your situation might be a little bit different. Your beds might be different lengths, different shapes, different sizes. Something to take into consideration in figuring out what the yield average. Our beds are 100 feet long. And so we knew by a little bit of math, that for a 100-foot bed, we would get 551 pounds of beets from a bed. That is the yield average. Now, if any of you have been in farming in any amount of time, you've probably experienced that when you plant a bed of something, you're not going to get 100% production out of that bed. In other words, you're probably gonna fail at that planting in some degree or another. It's not gonna be perfect. That's our story for pretty much everything that we grow. It's not perfect. And um, you know that, okay, they're saying 551. Well, let's take it at 65%. So say we get 65% of that yield average. What number does that put us at? So 65% of 551 gives us 358. So we say, okay, so if we get at least 65% production rate off of this yield average, we're going to expect to get around 358 pounds of beets out of our bed. Is this making sense so far? Okay, so then what do we sell our beets at per pound? So assuming we sell our beets at $150, at $150 a pound, (laughs) these are the best beets you'll ever eat in your life. No, they actually gold line. No, $1.50 a pound. Uh, so at $1. fifty a pound for 358 pounds of beets, we're looking at a projected revenue of $537 for a bed, for that bed of beets, right? And then the question is, well, how many beds of beets are you going to be growing throughout the year? So for us, we're going to be growing seven beds worth of beets throughout the year. So then we take that $537, multiply it by seven, and that gives us our projected revenue of $3,759 in beets for 2020. And that's that's the exact same thing that we did with the sweet peppers. We get The USD yield average for our growing size is 1,102 pounds of sweet peppers. We're budgeting that, we'll say we get 65%. 716 pounds, multiply that by our price that we sell it per pound, $4.25, that's $3,043 per bed. How many beds are we growing this year? Two, projected revenue, $6,086 on sweet peppers for 2020. And we had around 30-ish varieties of product that we were planning on growing this year. We do this exercise for every single product. And so at the end of the day, We had a total projected revenue using that 65% of $1, $174,915. And our total revenue goal was $68,605. So you can see from our total projected revenue and our total revenue that we needed to have a shot at making the farm go and making our family survive or having our family survive. We had pretty good margins right there, That's a pretty significant difference. Um, so I guess that, that's the last slide I have. Now to, to be to be completely transparent, um, we we just finished finished our books for the year we just finished all of our reporting and analytics and whatnot we estimated that we actually had around a, I think it's a little less than 30%. So you see the 65% number? That's what, we were, that's, what we were, that's what we were using the math. We knew we likely would not get 65%, but that was the math that we used. And so then actually going back and looking at the year, okay, what were we doing? How, how close were we? What, what is that looking like? We came in at about 30% uh, success rate. So you take that yield average and it would actually have been closer to 30%. So um, that just kind of gives you an idea of where we were or where we, where we are and where we finished 2020. Uh, of course, one of our main objectives, priorities for the farm is to figure out how to bump that 30% up to 40% or 50% or 65%. Uh, so that's a class for another day. Uh, my brother is a soil science uh, guru. That's probably one of the ways that's definitely one of the ways we're working on improving that number. But just so you kind of understand the process that we went to to understand if we even had a shot at this. So um, you, Mr. Keevans, turn.
0: Thank you, Aubrey. And again, just to underscore the message that Aubrey gave and tie it back to some of the things I shared in the beginning. This was an example of a budget that we did in order to answer a specific question. Did you pick up that connection as Aubrey went through her words? Did you get the question we were trying to answer? is it even possible? Does this farm have a shot? Because if it doesn't, and the budgeting process demonstrated that there was, you know, virtually no chance for the crop plan they had to cover their expenses, then there's a chance for them to have that consideration of, do we even stay in this business? And if you can't stay in the business, it's a lot better to discover that early and make an alternate plan than to wait until you're in the hole. That was a whole exercise. Now, there was good news for them, and I'm very optimistic about their future. But it doesn't always turn out that way. That's what the budgeting process can unveil if you go through the exercise. Okay? So we've had um, allowed a little time for questions and answers. We can take maybe five minutes or so. This is open like anything in this module or the last module or any generalized questions. Uh, does anybody want to ask a question? Go ahead, Tony. You are talking to the mic. Thanks.
2: Um, I just wanted to ask how you came up with uh, how much you were going to charge for $4.25 to cents for each uh, piece of equipment. Go ahead. How did we figure out how much to charge our customers? Uh, I'm actually
1: going to let my dad speak to that real quick. He's <laughs> yeah. the, I'm like, Dad, what's the
2: price? <laughs> <laughs> we just threw a number out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot depends on what we feel like the demand is. And a lot depends on, I do a variety of looking around and seeing what seems to be kind of the going rate. Uh, But I will tell you, there are a number of veggies that uh, we grow that I think are pretty competitive, even with like organic prices at Walmart, but there are some veggies that we grow that are much more expensive than the organic. So I don't have a good typical rule of thumb. There is a sense on the one thing that Aubrey, you know, if you're just looking at the numbers, they're the numbers. But keep in mind, that the only way that revenue number gets to that point is that um, if you grew 65% and you sold 65%. Right. Okay? Right. That's the key. It's about making sure you're selling the 65%. So when we maybe sold 30%, that meant in some areas we had more produce than we had market for. But there are other areas that we were well short. We could have had much more produce in certain things. We had much bigger market demand than we actually had produce. And so what that shows us as we go through this, and we're not gonna get into quite that much detail here, but just when Al and I are talking about what we're looking at to doing for 2021, we're shifting things. We're gonna go more of this, less of this. But if you don't track the numbers, you have no idea. You have no idea. there's a lot of variables that provide a lot of help in helping you plan what you want to do for the next growing season. But if you don't know, you don't know. But I would just say, look around. You'll get a feel for what the what the demand is. And if you have certain if, if you have certain things that uh, you know, there's certain things that feel like, wow, we, we, we charge a pretty healthy price for that. That if we have short supply of it, it's, it's it's gone like that because the the key is that people provide fresh beautiful i mean we try to do things that are fresh and beautiful and that somebody can put in the refrigerator and it's going to be there three and a half weeks later and they're going to use it they don't get that kind of quality if they go to the store and buy something generally you know it depends on what you're growing but if you're growing like lettuce lettuce mix kale some of these nice greens Shelf-like and a lot of stuff you buy off the shelf in the store is very short. In fact, some people say, I open it up when I get home, the lettuce mix is already backed. And then they go, Oh, man, I had your lettuce mix in our food for three weeks. And it still looks like I just bought it. So, some of those things are there's a lot of value there that you can't compare necessarily to store-bought stuff.
0: Yeah, very good. Thank you. Other questions? Christina, right? So when you're doing like, your budget and you're projecting,
2: like, okay, we think that we can make this much, and you're going through, like, breaking down your beds and stuff, my question is, how do you project a realistic number of, like, how many beds you're preparing and that kind of stuff so that you don't overshoot yourself and be like, oh, yeah, I can manage this, and then you go and um, start the year, and you're like, oh, actually, I can't manage that many beds.
0: You want to respond, Aubrey? <laughs> Uh, well,
1: uh, the word potato comes to mind for our family this year. Um, no, that's a, it's a very real and I, it's a very real problem. And, and really, it's I mean, Alan's the expert. He's the one that lays out the well expert. Yeah, I guess you're the expert. Um, he's the one that lays out the farm plan, you know, ahead of time. And it's it's kind of it's a learning experience right, so you grow something one year, you grow a certain amount, you've got to be paying really close attention to what you're actually doing, and then learn how to adjust, and for us, because we have, we're succession style growing, you know, it's not like we plant, for most things, we don't just plant one thing, and then that's it for the whole year, it's like, we plant four beds of lettuce, and then we plant four beds of lettuce, and then we plant, and we might plant lettuce multiple times during the year, Excuse me times during the year, right, and so if you're paying attention, what your numbers are looking at not only in terms of productivity but also in terms of demand it's important to be able to pivot i know it's a little bit harder with flowers and you do primarily flowers because um, they're in the ground a whole lot longer than maybe some of these cut and done vegetable products but really paying attention to not only what you can manage but what your demand and productivity is and then and then pivot and keep track of those things because like we, we had conversations at the end of this year where like okay, we know we are not growing 16 beds of potatoes again. Like, that is a lesson learned. It was a pain in all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the lack of revenue that we got from it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's really kind of figuring it out and then and analyzing it, watching it, changing it, keeping track of it. Um, and then also keeping track of not only just productivity, revenue, but time, like you said this yeah. time is an kind of incredibly valuable asset for a
0: small market firm. I would just follow Aubrey's comment from the perspective of one who's brand new in the business. If you're thinking ahead about what you can get done, you probably won't be able to get as much done as quickly as you want. It'll be more painful to get it done, and it will yield less than what you think. That's been my experience. <laughs> and for me, the word onions comes to mind. But we all have our stories. We do, and, and they're all painful. So anyways, good question. Right here. I will go ahead, and if you take a, a next question.
2: For um, the question regarding what price to charge, um, your extension office is very helpful. Um, they it, we live in Virginia and they have directed us to the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Civil Services, and they keep track of what. Um, the prices are for different vegetables and fruits in different counties in the state. And so then you kind of have a projection of what mm-hmm. what you can start with
1: as a price. Yeah, excellent suggestion. Uh, your extension office could help provide you with uh, pricing for your local
2: area. Last one here, go ahead. If you track labor, I did not see labor in your No. Do you want to answer that one?
0: i 'll answer it, and you can follow up, yeah, there is no labor budget the only there's no employees, so all the work is done by family members, and so they just haven 't budgeted labor essentially, you can think of the family requirement that twenty seven fifty a month as your labor compensation that 's the the closest association we have, but they don 't have a, a labor pool. Did you want to follow up with something Ah the yeah i don't think we have numbers on that. Do you guys have something you haven 't told me about Please no. Yeah, well, but we, we, we don't. It yeah, it would be a good, good endeavor. And if you find a, a quick and efficient way to do that that works in the context of a busy farm, I promise you these guys will be interested. I will too, actually, yeah. So is it a short one, Sean? Okay, go ahead.
2: You know, I really like um, all-in-one tools, things you can build yourself. I like Excel a lot, but I hate Excel because it doesn't operate like a database. So there's something out there now it's called the Airtable, you want to track all sorts of things, and you build it yourself. It's called Airtable. Yeah, it's like twenty-four bucks a month. But it's, for me, it's totally, totally, totally worth it. Now I have it linking with my Shopify account before I launch a store. And there's just there's a ton of ability for a small time to use. And is it? It's it's
1: intuitive to use Air, Airtable. It's a software. It's
0: like a glorified uh, Excel system. So it's set up like a spreadsheet, but it sounds like it has like some database properties.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a database. We personally have been using Google Google Sheets. I converted Mr. Keevan to Google Sheets, at least in some regard. Yeah. Um, and that's really helpful because it's, I mean, kind of like Airtable. It's a shareable, a shareable cloud-based system, so you don't have your information just on one computer. If that computer crashes, or if somebody isn't there to access the computer. Mr. Keevan keep, can keep track of what's going on. I can keep track of what's going on. I can show it to my parents. It's been really easy, and it's free. Not nearly as, as nice and snazzy as Airtable. I, I use Airtable in other spheres in of my life. But um, Google Sheets has worked really well for us. We actually use it a lot more than just for finance tracking. Um, but that's the that's, that's tool that we use um, along with QuickBooks.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. We'll have one more uh, Q&A session at the very end, so if you didn't get one... Uh, if you have a question you didn't get answered, hang on to it. We'll try again here in the next um, the next uh, session. So moving on to module three, we're getting out of the directly financial and accounting pieces, and we're going to talk about a module that I'm entitled Getting Paid, but you'll recognize that very quickly as a, a module about sales and marketing. Getting Paid just makes me feel better about talking about it because sales is something that... I would say it's not my favorite thing. In fact, you may recognize this picture as related to the one we put up just at the beginning of the budget session. Yeah, this is the way I've felt about sales over the course of my life, right? So some people don't like budgeting. I don't particularly enjoy sales. Now I will say that over the course of my career, especially in my last job, where I shared an office with a marketing guy for several years, that I started to make peace with it a little bit. I learned a little bit of the lingo One time, I even actually called on a customer and had a successful sale. And that actually, Ricky, that's not bad. Yeah, I can see why, you know, people like you might actually enjoy that every once in a while. But I never got converted. I'm still a finance guy. Anyways, just having a little bit of fun with that. But one thing I will say in all seriousness is I learned a lot about not only how critical it is to the health of a business, but how much of an art form it is to do it well. And there's a big difference between doing it well and doing it only mediocre, and it makes a lot of difference to the value of your product and the success of your business. So it's worth spending a module on, even if all you're gonna to get to hear from me is an accountant's perspective on sales, okay? So I'm gonna share that with you, um, just to tell you a little bit about how I learned to think about sales and selling and then we'll have a, another discussion question period, and you'll before the module is over, probably after the break, you'll get to hear from uh, Ricky. And that's good news for you all, because Ricky actually is a sales professional. That's what he did before he went into full-time farming. And so he'll have some good things to share about their experience um, on Better Together Farm with respect to sales. Okay, so no surprise, I would start out a conversation about sales by putting up the first two lines of an income statement. That's what accountants live for is financial statements. And this income statement, these first two lines from an income statement are what I'm starting with. But for me, they provide a very simple lens through which I've learned to look at sales and selling questions and ideas that for me is very helpful. So I just wanna share it with you. Hopefully it can maybe be useful to you in some context or in some way. So these two lines, net sales less cost of sales, you'll recognize it's the first two lines on almost any income statement you'll see for any organization. And I'm not gonna use the cost of sales definition that you typically see in a financial statement, but it's close enough for what we're doing today. So net sales is simply the amount of money you take in. And I'm using that line to think about the value that you can create. And we'll talk a little bit more about the value proposition, value creation in just a moment. But that's the value side of the equation. And then the cost of sales, I'm thinking about just the direct cost of selling, okay, so the work of promoting your product or the work of packaging and delivering your product or the work of taking orders or answering customer service questions. There's a whole sales effort that goes around generation of sales for your product, whatever business you're in, and there's costs associated with that activity. That's kind of my second line, right? So when there's a sales idea or a sales conversation going on, I'm asking myself questions in one of these two domains. So I'll take just a couple of minutes and we'll dive into each of those a little bit more. When I was sharing my office with Dan, the marketing guy, for the last several years, I heard this question, what is your unique value proposition, I think more than I heard any other question when he was talking with staff right? They were asking the question, why would somebody want to buy our product? And their answer to this question forms this unique, you hope it's unique, value proposition, right? You hope that you bring something to the table for your customers that they can't find anywhere else, or at least they don't find it easily. That's your unique value proposition. And some of the things I've learned that uh, can contribute to what that value is are things like, I'll put up a few of them on the slide. It could be product or Uh, you know, you have the best product, could be where it is, you're more convenient for that person to get it, Uh, or the price, you have the best price. Those are kind of the standard marketing things. I remember learning those in my marketing class back in college. But some of the additional things that I learned through the process of this um, sharing the office and hearing all these sales conversations is that there are other things, like relationships. Are you likable? Sometimes people buy stuff because they like the person they buy it from. And they may not have the best product or the best place or any of those things, but they really like the person. That's a way that you can create value for your product. And it's one of the, way, the things that the silers excel at. Um, they would never say that about themselves, but I will say it about them. And they have some of their customers, I'm convinced, just buy from them because they like the silers so much. So they've used that to their advantage. There's a connection to the customer's identity, right? So I remember, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, Um, The farm was having a little event at a business location in Ardmore, and I didn't hear this conversation, but I heard Aubrey report about it later. Some guy came through, and he was picking up his order of organic vegetables, which his wife has ordered, and he was looking at some product list that showed, I don't think it was for them. I think it was for a partner of the farm that showed a list of vegan options and a list of non-vegan options. And so I, I think it was Aubrey asked him, here's a list of some other things that are available. Are you interested in any of these? Remember what he said? He looked at that list, and he said, "Hmm." I'm a cattle farmer. What's this vegan stuff? Right? Wasn't that something like what he said? People make buying decisions based on how well it fits with their concept of themselves. Right? And so creating value can sometimes be as simple as understanding what that identity is and how to align your product in the customer's mind with that identity. Right? Now that can be a challenge in a place like Oklahoma where there's a big, you know, meat and potatoes culture. But Even in our place, there's a lot of people that don't identify that way. They identify with the kind of stuff that this farm produces. So anyways, it's another way to create value. You can provide outstanding service. You've probably been on the receiving end of this, and when somebody responds quickly to um, a question or a complaint that you have and takes care of your problem and makes you feel good for calling, it makes all the difference, right? So I imagine you probably already understand what we mean by that. Networking can make a big difference as well. Um, The farm, Better Together Farm, has just started to experiment with this in the last little bit. There's another business in the same town where they're located. They started to do some joint things together with. But there can be a network effect. If you can bring to the table not only your product, but something else that the customer wants, it cements or strengthens their connection to you and your product, your business. And there's lots of other things. I put in parentheses, don't be afraid to ask. What I mean is don't be afraid to ask your customers why they buy from you. What is it that they really like. And if you're really lucky or you're really persistent, the best thing to do is to find people that don't buy from you and ask them why they don't buy from you or what they could do or what you could do to make them interested in buying from you. So those are all things that are tied to that that first lens, you know, what's the value proposition that my product, my farm can provide my customers? Then what does it cost to deliver that value? And again, we can think about this broadly. I'm focusing in, in this particular conversation on the selling costs. But there's all of the product costs too. And so you have a whole operation to produce the product. So you can, we can think about that. That's just beyond the scope of what we have time for this morning. So here are some things I've thought about in terms of the cost structure. It makes a difference whether the cost you're thinking about is variable or it's fixed. So as an example of a fixed cost, we have ordering software and we pay a certain amount a month for that software, regardless of whether we sell $100 or $1,000 or $10,000. That's an example of a fixed cost, okay? A variable cost is like the little bags you put the vegetables in when you're making an order. We use, the amount of bags that we use is directly related to how much we sell, right? Does that kind of make sense? So when you're thinking about cost, that's an important distinction to make to understand how the cost would behave with respect to changing sales levels. Here's a couple of things, supplies, equipment, and infrastructure. Those are all things that have impact on your cost structure. A couple of others I wanted to add that aren't quite so quantifiable but that are equally as important is time. And several of you have asked about time, or at least a couple of you have asked about time. In the situation like what the Silers have with their farm, I would say this is a critical resource. And so be conscious of how much time it takes you to implement an idea, And even if you can't put dollars to it, it makes all the difference in what you're able to do uh, and how much you enjoy life, which is the next thing. Think about the stress level. Some activities just create more stress. And you have a stress limit. I call it a stress budget, my favorite word, right? But if it takes some stress in order to get an idea in place, that's a cost. Think about it that way. It may be worth the cost, but it's not cost-free if it's increasing your stress. The other thing I encourage particularly... when you're doing budgeting, but even in conversations like this, is that there's unknowns. And so every time you go into a situation, there's probably going to be something that you don't know about, that you learn. So when you think about the possibility of making a change or making an investment, I just encourage you to be conservative, right? Think this is, you know, I've thought of all the things I can think of, here's what my analysis looks like, and then I probably ought to assume that something's going to go wrong. Because usually it does, because we don't know everything. That's how we figure this stuff out is by experience. So the questions to ask regarding sales ideas, this is just a summary of another way of saying the same thing I've already said. If you're considering an upgrade to your sales process or plan, how does your upgrade add value? You've got to be convinced that what you're doing is going to actually add value. If you think it does, then quantify it as best you can. How much value does it add? Same thing on the cost side of the equation. If you're uh, considering an upgrade or doing something different in a way that will allow you to do the same level of sales but more efficiently, how does that work? How does it reduce some cost that you have? And if it does, how much much does it reduce cost? So those are the questions I ask. That's kind of the framework I use. And um, that's what I would describe as a summary. So I'll leave that slide up there. Um, for just a minute, and I'm going to go ahead and and move into the case study part. What we'll do is I'm going to give you just a little bit of case history about how Better Together Farms has progressed over the years with respect to their selling effort. Then we'll break into our groups, and we'll have one more conversation with some questions, and then following that, we'll take the break. And when we come back from the break, then you'll hear from uh, Ricky, and you can hear a little bit about what Better Together Farms has actually done in this arena in the last year, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna press on if anybody needs me to go back to that slide, I can come back to it during the break. I'm gonna just give the highlights of the sales progression. There's nuances and little things that the sellers have tried along the way. If you want a more comprehensive description, please talk to them because they're, you know, they're very willing to share these kind of things. When, When they first started selling, the process they used was to have a piece of paper that had their products and their prices on it. They'd hand those pieces of paper to customers or leave them at places for customers to pick up, and then they would call the customers to get the orders. Okay? So that was back a long time ago when they started. That's how they got started. And it was a, um, a low-tech, easy way to get started. And it, um, they quickly learned that they wanted to do something more and there was efficiencies to gain. But again, uh, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Every step is worth celebrating. I don't know if I congratulated you on that step, Alan, back 10 years ago, but I should have. Getting started was a good thing, right? The next generation, I call it, that they had was when they got ordering software and they started accepting the orders online, okay? And then once they had the orders in, they would, you know, assemble them and put them all together and package the orders. And then they would take their orders to what they called a pop-up market. Okay, so they had two locations, one in Murray County, one in Carter County. The customers would know that the pop-up market would operate for a couple hours on such and such a day. So they would place their orders a day or two beforehand go to the pop-up market and pick up their order and pay for it at that time. And then at the same time, they would bring um, what they called extras. So if they had production that didn't sell, they would set up a section of their pop-up market with extras and either walk-up customers or customers that had collected or had made orders could buy extras on top of what they'd already ordered. They were guaranteed to get what they did order, but if they wanted extras, there were some available. And that's the way they ran their market for, I don't know, three or four years, something like that, several years. Um, and that allowed them a level of growth and service and efficiency that was definitely an upgrade to that first generation. And so that was the second step. And so again, I've shared this before. this using this um, online ordering with pop-up markets that got them to about 40,000 dollars worth of sales in 2019. So as you've heard already in Aubrey's presentation, the target that they have for this year was $68,000. So the question that I want to invite you to consider in your groups, whether it's this situation or if you have a comparable situation from your own, is what selling upgrade are you or could you consider for your situation, right? If you don't have a situation, think about what you would advise Better Together Farm to do to get from that 40 to that 68. What could they do that they haven't done so far? If you have your own situation, answer it in in context of that. But go ahead and uh, gather together in your groups and share for about five minutes. And then as soon as you're done with that, go ahead and go on break. And we'll reconvene here at about 1045, about 15 minutes from now. Okay? Thanks. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,